This episode brought to you by Audible, your audio book source with over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. And today you can receive a free audiobook and 30-day free trial by visiting audibletrial.com slash sports. So don't wait. That's audibletrial.com slash sports for your free audiobook and 30-day free trial. Listen to your audiobook anywhere, anytime. Taking sports to another level. Welcome to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Exploring the latest headlines and going behind the scenes with in-depth interviews. Hearing personal stories and the impact of sports in their lives. Here's your host, Richmond Weaver. What time is it? This is episode 41. I am your host, Richmond Weaver, and glad you're listening through whatever format that might be. And thanks for being an investor by investing your time to listen. Our guest this episode is Edwin McCain, award-winning singer and songwriter who the New York Times has called him the great American romantic. And we can all remember his songs in the early 90s, those mega hits, I'll Be, and I Could Not Ask For More. And now we know that music is a huge cornerstone in Edwin's life as he's continuing to tour today. So his career is still going strong, but he's also a huge sports fan. So when we sat down together, I asked him, so are you a big football fan? I am. I'm a. Fo- I got football issues. I love. I I listen to the NFL channel like almost exclusively all the time. Like it's crazy. It's it's. Uh, I I love it. It's amazing. It's. And so, who are your teams? Well, the Patriots. I love the Patriots, and I really just because I love Belichick. I just like I like I love everything about the way he coaches and his whole deal and just his leadership style. Yeah, the leadership style, the whole. But you know, I mean, here you know, perfect example. The he, Belichick takes these guys. He's he's always watching the talent that's out there and underutilized, so that when he can get his hands on them, he knows exactly what to do. Case in point, Chris Hogan. You know, he keeps his eye on. He had his eye on Chris Hogan when he was playing lacrosse at Penn State, and and then watches him all the way through Buffalo. And then he gets released from Buffalo, puts him in his hip pocket, but then doesn't use him until the the championship game. And then nobody's covering because they're like, why isn't? Why would you cover this kid? Nobody even knows who he is. Well, this is why because they're going to drop bombs on you with him all night long. Sorry. You know that's just like, but that's a, that's the chess game, right? That's the that's the that's the ultimate coach's chess game. I'm gonna put this player in my hip pocket and wait. And dude, I mean, come on, that was that was that was coaching pure and simple. And they play their hearts out for him because there are a bunch of guys on that team that get got a second chance because of him, and because they because they have a second chance in the NFL to play for Belichick. They play their guts out. Now, have you always been a Patriots fan, though? Um, no, I grew up in the South. I was a I was a Falcons fan in the in the uh, in the uh, Steve Bartkowski years, the Billy White Shoes Johnson in those years. I was a I was a I was an Atlanta fan, but you know, and then you really had to be a fan because those weren't great years. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I know, and that was what it was. I mean, it was what it was. Yeah, me growing up in the Atlanta area. Yeah, that's why I became a Dallas Cowboys fan. So there you it was go. America's team, exactly. the star. America's All team. Of it. Yeah, everybody loves Stallback. That's that right. The Roger the Dodger era. era. Yeah, um, but I'm a, I you know I like I like the Steelers too. I mean, as weird as that is, you know, because that was that was a conflict for me this year because I like the Steelers. I kind of like I always like the Steelers. Um, I like the Raiders. I mean, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> yes. I always like the I like the teams that had a little bit of that that pushback, a little punk streak in them. Um, I, I, I I share that unfortunate malady, uh, but I like 
I like those teams. I like the teams that are a little unconventional. Now, are you more of an NFL guy versus college? No, I mean, I love bowl season. Like, my rule with my agent is you can't book gigs during bowl season. You can't because it's just not fair. I mean, when bowl season's on, like, I'm watching bowl games. I don't care who it is. I love college football. You just don't ever know what's happening, especially with the – with the with the lesser known teams, like you just never know. You can't ever tell what's going to go down in a bowl game, and in, and they're all. I mean, some of those games are just amazing. So, um, so yeah, I'm I'm good with college, and and I have a feeling that as my sons get older, you know, I'm probably going to be getting into high school ball too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so now, what about you growing up? Talk about playing sports. I played and- sports all growing up. Uh, soccer at the Y as a kid, um, uh, and then basketball, church basketball. Like everybody in the South plays church basketball, so I played church basketball, um, and then played middle school and high school basketball, and then played high school football. And um, I was not very good at any of them. I mean, I was I was never a starter, um, but I love being on the team, and uh, I love the experience. And, yeah, and what did you love about it? You know, the whole thing, the the challenge of, and we had hard coaches too. We this is this this is the '80s, so they taught us all the wrong stuff, and they 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 PT'd us way too hard. And, you know, it wasn't like now where they, you know, they understand the science and the, you know, everybody's eating the right stuff and doing exactly the right weightlifting. And our, you know, ours was just like boot camp all the time. You know, it was just, it was, it was, it was harsh, but in the same breath, it was, um, it was one of those things where you, you you overcome the challenge of two a days in August, and then nothing really seems that bad. You know, if you can live through two a days in August in the South, then you're okay. And um, uh, it it was just is like I tell my sons, you kind of find out where you, where your limit is, and then you try to push that out as far as you can, phys- like you know, realistically push that as far as you can, and then then you know where that is. And a lot of people don't know where their limit limits are, so they assume they're a lot lower than they than they truly are. And I think that's what it, it gives you. And then the idea that you're playing for for more than just you, you're playing for your team and you know, you've got a responsibility to do your job for for your teammates and that's uh I think it's an, it's an important uh, uh ethic to learn. What sport did you enjoy playing more? I love football the most, and I wish I'd been better at it. But uh, you know, I love—I just—I loved football. I really did. It was—it was my favorite to play. Um, and I, I was lucky because a lot of my teammates were just really talented athletes. So, and really good, and really nice people. Like uh, the guy I played behind in high school is a guy named Bill Mitchell, and he was just like really. And to this day, like one of the nicest people I know, he's just a genuinely good human being. And so it was a not, it was it was a good person to know at that time because, you know, it set that standard of oh well, you know what, you can be a nice guy and still be a great football player. You can be a nice guy and play fair, and in life, it doesn't have to be about, um, you know being angry and mad and all this stuff you can have a smile on your face and still knock the crap out of somebody <laughs> which he did he's a nice guy now how did music start becoming more of a bigger factor in your life music was always a big factor um it was always the an over an uh an uh it's kind of set the tone i was singing from the time i was old enough to be in church choir all the way through high school. And and the truth of the matter is, is that a lot of times I would end up on academic probation. So I could play football, right? And then I would get on academic probation because I wasn't very good in school at all. I hated school. And so then I would be in my band. I would have a band and be playing gigs on the weekends. And and so that was, that was it. And now we were making, you know, we started making money as 15 year olds playing in bands in the high in high school at, at bars and we would rent the national guard armory and 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 play gigs and had charge a dollar at the door and and it was you know we were already making a making pretty good money as kids playing in, in a band so it wasn't a big leap to go hey this is 
you could do this. Like, you know, we could actually do this. Even and my plan, I love, you know, everybody loves to pretend like they had some big plan, but my big plan was I was just going to be the guy that plays acoustic guitar in the bar, you know, down at the beach town. That was my plan. Cause those guys seem happy and they make a decent amount of money. So whatever. And uh, so all this other stuff that happened was a result of, of the timing, you know, Malcolm Gladwell, uh, lays it out in outliers, but the timing is, was everything, you know, we, we just happened to be a pretty good regional band at the time when Dave Matthews and Hootie and the Blowfish exploded and we just rode the wave and we were lucky. It was just pure luck. You know, the working hard part goes without saying, unless you're willing to just really go hard at it, you can't even get to the point where luck can play a part. You know, you have to get into the zone where luck can actually affect some change in your life. And we played 300 and plus gigs a year in any any place that would have us play. I would play anywhere. And actually, to this day, I'll play anywhere. I don't care. Um, and that's one of the things that really kind of clips up a lot of bands is they'll they'll reach a certain status and then go, oh, well, I can't go back to the clubs. And I call it gig snobbery. You know, the only people, because they feel like people will notice, well, it'll look bad if I go back and play that little club I used to play, because now I'm playing, I'm playing the theater now. I can't play the club again. Yeah, you can't. No, no one notices that but you. You know, they come to the show, they know whether or not they had a good time, and 10 minutes after they leave, they've forgotten all about it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So now, tell us the story, and I know you probably have told this before, but how did the meetings come about Dave Matthews, Hooting the Blowfish, and you all kind of converged we together. All, How did that happen? I, it happened in the fraternity houses. We, and back then, I, this is a, we. This would be a, a regular occurrence um, at any college campus on the eastern seaboard. Uh, but I remember specifically one weekend at WNL University, Hootie and the Blowfish was playing SAE. We were playing KA. And Dave Matthews was playing Kappa Sig, and the Grapes were playing somebody else, you know. And and it was and back then it was it was that was how bands made it into the clubs was you'd start out playing the fraternity houses and you would play them till you had a fan base big enough to where when you played the club in town, everybody would show up. And uh that was a time-honored tradition, you know. That was just how everybody did it. And we were all riding around in a van and trailer. And it was, you know, at the time, that was as good as it got for for South for southeastern bands, bands from the South. We, were, we, weren't, we weren't even considered in the industry. They didn't no, – nobody, nobody in the record business signed Southern bands. I mean, they, that, was, that was over after the Allman Brothers. Yeah, whatever. Allman Brothers, Leonard Skinner, enough. No more Southern bands. And then um, we went through the grunge phase, and everybody got really tired of staring into their belly buttons and feeling bad about themselves. And then here comes this band, Hootie and the Bloodfish. And everybody just, and you know, Dave Letterman said Hootie three times in a row on his show because he likes saying the word hootie and all hell broke loose. I mean, it was crazy. And, and, um, we, we, we literally, we all went from playing fraternity houses and, and Dave Matthews was probably a little bit ahead of the hootie phenomenon in that he had grown, he had built an, uh, independent following big enough to sell 10,000 copies of his independent release. And at that time, if you sold 10,000 copies of an independent release, you automatically got a record deal. So Dave got a record deal. And as soon as RCA showed up with Dave, the other record companies were like, wait a second, something's happening in the Southeast. And so they started looking around. And then here's Hootie and the Blowfish with this, you know, they're every man is represented in the band. They're playing this really happy, easy to get along music. And it was, it was It was incredible to watch that phenomenon unfold because I was with them 
opening up most shows. And we just we went from playing fraternity houses to playing eighty thousand seat venues in six months. Like the change was astonishing. Yeah, were you prepared for that type of change? Well, yeah. At that by that time, like we all kind of could tell it was get it was it was starting, and so. You know, by the time you're strapped into a rocket, you know you're on the rocket. So everybody was sort of like, holy crap, is this really going to happen? And then it started. just It just went ballistic. And then and another, another example of it was really good for me to be friends with them at that time because they, they really did treat it. They were so level-headed about being as famous as they were because I'm – I would not have been that way. If left to my own devices, I would have tried to be like David Lee Roth or something. You know, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm at 47 years old. I can tell you that 20 year old me was a little egocentric <laughs> and might not have taken that as okay. well. So luckily I was around those guys and they didn't really take it very seriously. And so they were really good role models for me then. And, and they treated me like their little brother and they, they kind of, when they got their big record deal, they sort of made a, they sort of told the record company, like, we want to get him one too. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't know for lack of any better term. I mean, yeah. they basically just said, yeah, we're bringing him with us. And, and they did that for me. And that, which is why, you know, when Darius or Mark or anybody in that band calls me to do something, the only answer is yes. I'd never be able to repay them for what they did for me at the beginning. And 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 even to this day, we're all real close. And, and you know, what better ride to go on with your friends than that one? And it was it was it was a different time. I mean, you got to remember, this is this is when all of the available capital that people spend on their cell phones was was spent on music and it was it was 21 million records you blinked and they sold 21 million records and so and then you blink again and 20 years has gone by and so how has that changed in 20 years when you're talking about records now digital downloads and it's completely reversed okay like our industry is completely reversed from it used to be uh that uh you would go on tour to promote an album and now you release music to promote a tour um uh, the, the 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 cd sales used to be the driving force in the industry and now sales of music are essentially with the exception of vinyl vinyl is the is the top selling medium in music now like as far as dollars generated vinyl is what sells the is makes the most money I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, a, that's crazy to think. That right? is. Yeah. How so, is that possible? Because everyone's consuming their music on Pandora or these streaming services. They're not actually paying for it. You know, they're 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 what they're paying is is point zero 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 three cents per download or per per stream, um, and so it's changed considerably. And so now what's happened is that the only way to really earn any money in the music business is to be on tour is to be playing gigs but and so that's why you're seeing so many people back out on the road because this sort of st steady stream of of record sales and, and uh, royalty income has gone away um it's it's been fascinating but when we got signed with atlantic and got our deal when i was setting up our business i sort of set it up to be touring only like as far as we de we set up our model to fo to function just on the tour base and not have anything every like all the royalty income didn't really factor into the viability of what we were doing. So if we could survive on what we made on the road, then we would survive, which turned out to be a good thing because and I didn't see it coming. It just was a reality because what when we signed with the record label, we took you know advances and and made records that were expensive to make so we knew we weren't going to see any royalties for a long time so that was just a for we just that was just a yeah you uh, had some foresight but I, I didn't have any i didn't it wasn't like i was clairvoyant it's just we did what we had to do but yeah. it turned out that was a good thing because that's the way it is now that's the way our industry is currently um but the other thing too is that there's a is i because i'll i'll play anywhere i still have gigs so I don't it doesn't bother me to go and play someplace that I used to play a long time ago. I mean, I, 
I I got I got to go and ride the big ride and I got to play the big venues and now I get to come back and play the other venues I used to play and who cares? You know, <laughs> there's an audience there and they like to hear what we're doing. So what do you like better? Big audience or the intimate audience? Uh, I, I prefer the intimate thing. Um but the don't get me wrong, the big outdoor fun shed show is always I'm never going to turn that down, um, but it's not as conversational, and and you you can't you don't have the you don't really have that moment where the space between the notes is really important, and you have that um, the power of the of dynamics. It's usually just fourth gear all night long, and you know that's it, it is what it is. But you know that, so you go out there and you play that. But I like the I like the gigs where you can hear a pin drop and 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 really sort of get inside the meanings of the songs and share sort of the journey with an audience. Um, the the big loud outdoor rock show is you know it's just the difference between um, uh, driving fast and you know, enjoying a quiet moment. You know, it's just two totally different things. And what's your opinion and your stance on the whole download scenario and should people be paying for the streaming downloads? Because that obviously can affect you. It's affected me, but it's, I mean, it's it's affected me if I, if I, if I crunch down on it, um, it's affected me, but, but, I couldn't, I couldn't begin to fathom the life that I've been given because of music. So my gratitude outweighs anything that any sort of slight dip in this unbelievable gift I've been given. You know what I mean? It's hard for me to look back in anger and anything. You know, if it all ended tomorrow, I would say thank you and go, you know, run my forestry mulcher for people wherever they need me to clear land. And, you know, I mean, that was, that's basically <laughs> what would happen. I honestly, I just, I don't, um, I, I've been given so much more than I deserve, uh, that, that every day I have a job in the music business, which is actually really, which is sort of what inspired me not playing so much, um, and not depending on music to be my only source of income because I felt like I was demanding too much of music and that if I really want to do this for a long time for the rest of my life, I need to, I need to, you know, ease up on how much I'm expecting out of music. And as in, ever since I did that, I mean, I, I started this process a couple of years ago, of just backing it down a little bit and being a little more careful with how much I'm pulling out of music. And, and ever since I did that, the gigs are better. The, the attendance is better. The it's it's in, more enjoyable all the way around. Um, it was the best thing I ever did because a lot of times every you know people just expect this business to just give them everything all the time, and it's unre it's unreasonable. Now, there's also an aspect from an athlete perspective. Their playing days will come to an end, sure, and they understand that, sure. and so they have to look at you know, what's their next career. So what you're describing is somewhat similar. You were looking at, Hey, I'm, I need to be prepared for other things outside of music. And I've been giving my wife this speech. She gives, she gives me a hard time. She goes, are you going to give me that two year speech again? Cause like, since <laughs> like, it was probably, it's like, like 96, maybe 97, like the height of the, of, of my one song that was a hit. It was like in the, in the, you know, it's still in the charts, and I'm giving her the talk. Like, look, this is probably only going to last a couple more years, so I'm gonna. I gotta start thinking about doing some other stuff. And so I, I've been saying that to her since '97. And she gives me a hard time. She goes, "You gonna give me that speech again this year?" I'm like, "Yes, yes, I am gonna give you that speech. I'm, I gotta think about what I'm doing." But part of it is I, I I've been doing uh, some some work, sort of in stewardship of of the next generation of musicians is trying to help some mentoring type things yeah and doing some songwriting seminars and helping younger artists and just trying to trying to trying to see what the next wave is going to be because i feel like any any successful career is sort of incomplete without a component of stewardship 
I feel like they're that that really the the period at the end of the sentence for for all of those. If you think of any of the sports stars, you know, like Rocky Blyer, you know, he's a perfect one. You know, I talk about a perfect example, Grace. Um, uh, but there's a stewardship component that goes into this. You know, that go and and coach younger players, and and so it's not quite the same in the music business because it's changed so much. But a lot of the 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 reasons why, like I, I when I do the songwriting seminars, I have a partner. That, that Maya Sharp, who handles a lot of the real sort of nuts and bolts parts of this is how you go about being a professional songwriter. And so I kind of cover the philosophy of it. You know, there's a there's a reason why being a songwriter is a good thing to do because you're providing a conduit for people to connect and understand complex human emotions. And that's a skill that's taught and managed and nurtured and and if we manage it and nurture it with each other then you can't really quantify the positive outcome to that um and sometimes families become closer or get reunited you know or people discover things about themselves or challenge themselves to be better or, or you know face an issue that's challenging them so now with your parents so how did they look at the aspect of you doing this music career and you they told them like one it. day, no, I'm doing like this. Dad didn't like it. He was smart not to like it. It was not, it's not a, it's not a, people love art and music, but no one wants their kids to be artists or musicians. Um, and I've always wondered why that is. And, and the support for the arts at a certain level, there's, there's this avalanche of support for music and, and the arts. And, but prior to that, you, you struggle, but I think the initial struggle to be an artist is sort of a litmus test to who really wants it. Okay. So I don't want, I don't, I'm not saying that should go away. I mean, I think it should be hard. I think it, I think there is a, there's a certain component of, of struggle that unless you've endured it, you can't appreciate success and that's what that's why these um contest shows uh i have a conflict with them okay now so describe that conflict well the conflict is is it what they've done is they they skip that step you have contestants that just walk in cold off the street and then all of a sudden they're famous and they miss the best part if you ask anybody that's had a successful career in the music industry, they very rarely tell you about the gigs they played at Carnegie Hall or or the awards they won or any of that. But if you sit around with 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 career musicians, the stories that they tell that that make them the happiest and have the most laughs are the ones from the beginning. The hardest struggle van and trailer like and they, and everyone will tell you they look back on those days as the greatest part. That's what you just described. I think when you were talking about playing at the fraternity houses. Yeah, that's it. And 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 everybody will tell you that. And 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 so I feel like a lot of these contest shows rob these people of who 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 clearly are talented enough to have a career in the music business. But what they do is they've 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 substituted this idea of financial and and professional success for a very short time they've they've substituted that for the opportunity to have a lifetime in music because very rarely do do winners go on to have multi-decade careers they have a few years and then it goes away or or the or the deals that they signed are so bad they can't really be viable um but the the, the van and trailer thing and and, and <laughs> you can have a life in music and be anonymous. You know, there are a lot of people that play regular gigs five or six days a week and support themselves and their families and, and, and they enjoy music and they entertain people and they, they do what musicians do, but they aren't famous. And, but it's as valid of choice as any. I don't know. There, there was some moment where people felt that, that music couldn't be validated unless some multinational corporation 
poured money on it, you know, and said, and promoted it. And, and I, I, I've always disagreed with that because I've seen some of the most incredible music from unknown people in some town just playing in the listening room that they play. The town gets it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Everybody's there. So, I mean, I, 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 I've always, and it's easy for me to say, and my, my, my songwriting partner, Maya, gives me a hard time because I, I take these, these sort of grandiose stances and she goes, well, it's easy for you to say because you got to ride the ride. But yeah, I mean, I got to ride the ride, but I'm right back here playing the windjammer two nights, you know, I, mean, I don't care. <laughs> now, so what's more enjoyable for you? The performance up on stage, or actually doing the songwriting. Uh, no, no, the performance is is the is awful work. It's terrible. It's okay, so horrifying. why is that so awful? It, and, and I used to I used to secretly keep that opinion. I didn't want anybody to know that I felt that way about it. And then I read an article where Sting says the worst moment of his life is when the pen is an inch away from the paper. Um, and and I was like, okay, good, good, because I don't feel I feel like that too. I dread I dread it because um, from I don't I don't I don't fictionalize music. Music is got to be based in some truth in my life or some experience that I've had or some belief that I hold. And so, so trying to mine the poetry out of my life. It, it it's a sometimes I struggle because I've I don't have anything worth writing about or I haven't I haven't lived long enough to come to a conclusion and I don't feel like writing fiction because I I don't feel like that connects I feel like when I play to people I'm I'm sort of trying to sort this out in front of them and and these are the things that that made songwriting and specifically being a singer songwriter attractive to me because. I saw a guy named David Wilcox play in Asheville and Black Mountain when I was a, when I was ten years old, and I was a fan of his, fan of songwriting, and uh, and and then you know there he was, just sort of talking about his life and sort of sorting it out with people and challenging them to hear his point of view and admitting to struggling with certain emotions or. And writing these songs that were kind of complicated um, from an interpersonal place and from a spiritual place, and 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 he wasn't he wasn't always trying to be entertaining. He was trying to to um, get us into this idea of we're going to sort this out together. I'm going to give you my point of view, and and see what you think about it. And I just I thought that was the greatest thing i was like what a cool way to live and and that's sort of what began the journey for me and that's always the way i've looked at songwriting so when i go into a songwriting mode it's 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 sort of forced i i maya will yell at me until i i go okay all right let's get it right and figure out how to write this um but i have to live long enough to have something to write about and and i'm not the only one that's like this i've I, there, there there are lots of songwriters out there you know, they get asked the question, like, when are you going to put out another album? Well, when I have 10 songs I like, you know, when I've lived long enough to write songs and, and that I'll, that I, that are real, that are true. Um, I don't want to, I just don't want to go. Yeah, so a lot of your songs are off of life experiences. Everything, you know, and I, and I've done a couple of Maya's songs, but they're, they're, they're representative of whatever the experience has been i i i the the there's one song called sober of hers that i did that that you know there's just there was no way i could have said it any better than that you know i i just it it's perfect the way it is so why not sing that song so is there a difference sometimes though when you're performing and it's a song that you wrote versus performing a song that somebody else wrote do you have a different connection yeah, with no, the totally. audience a, yeah when i do a cover when i play we play some cover songs just because they're fun and musically interesting songs but i have no emotional connection to them other than my desire to be accurate and play well um, but but as far as the all these other songs, there's a there's a life story in all of them. So when I go through and play these songs, which is like it's it's it is a lot. People want to hear a lot of really old songs, and these are songs I wrote in my twenties, and that, that were from experiences that I had in my twenties. So I'm essentially a cover band of my twenty year old self, and and um, but it's like flipping through a photo album. 
you know, I go, oh, you know, I remember, I remember exactly what was happening when I thought of this. And so I get to go out there and basically pull out, be that, be that guy and pull out my photo album and make everybody look at it every night when I play. Yeah. So how does that feel at times when you have fans that they want to hear your old stuff, but you've got new songs that you want to I get it. I, how man, do you balance that? I, I balance it. Like I, I'm a hypocrite if I don't play the old stuff, because when I go hear ACDC, I just want to hear back in black. Okay. Just play back in black. And then you can, if you really must for those about to rock as an encore, but, and I'll give you, you know, I'll give you one new song right at the beginning and maybe three quarters of the way through the show. I'm, I'm cool with like playing some, yeah, okay, ACDC, play me your new song, but I don't care anything about it. Like, and, and no, I know that about my audience. They want to hear these songs and they connected to these songs then, and they want to go back and go through their own photo album, which is attached to this music. So that's what we're doing. I'm going to do that, you know, but I, but occasionally I have people that are asking about new music, but it's not, um, it, it doesn't, I, it never takes a priority, but my answer has been now I just play longer shows. Like I, I, I'll go, I'll play the show, the official show, and then I finish and go, okay, look, that's the end of the official show. And if you've got some song you really wanted to hear and came here to hear tonight and I haven't played it yet, be you know, respectfully let me know what it is and I'll sit here and play it. And so I've found that that makes – and then – and also, I, I, and any of you that just came to hear the songs that you knew on the radio and you have a babysitter to get home to, please feel free to go. And, and so you're not going to hurt my feelings because I get it. I've got to get the babysitter home too, but – for those handful of people that really want to hear this really old stuff, and even if I can't remember it, somebody can call it up on their phone and I can read the lyrics while I play it. Whatever, I'll play it. I get that. So I I, I, I come from the fan perspective. Like, I want to just, I want somebody to walk out going, that was so cool. Like, that was, like, he couldn't remember the words, and I held the phone up for him, and now he played my this, song. I speaking to hear. of that, I've always wondered how often does that ever happen that you, just freeze and forget lyrics all the time. I mean, not all, not all the time, but regularly. But I, I just cop to it and then go back around and get it the next time around. I mean, nobody minds a mistake. I've never had anybody come up and just, just rail me after a show for making a mistake in a song. You know, the 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 failure is when you try to pretend like you didn't do it, or you know, you just own it. And and here's. This is this is ridiculous, but I went and saw Paul McCartney a couple of three nights in a row because I'm a huge fan of the drummer that he hired to play in his band. This guy named Abe Laboreal Jr., but it was the same show every night because, you know, there's lighting cues. This is whole thing. And it was the same. It was identically the same show every night to the point where Paul McCartney would go had this little piano and he would move it to the front of the stage and play some songs on acoustic piano. But he would make this little mistake every night, the same mistake, and say the same thing every night. Like, he's so perfect. He had to engineer a mistake into his show so that he could prove to the audience that he was kind of human. You know what I mean? So, and, so, so the mistake thing is kind of, I guess it can be endearing, but I've always just owned up to, I got, there, there's two different types of performers. Like, there's the Prince type of performer where he's a, He's a flipping superhero, and you can't ever be like him because he's an alien. He's not you. You're never gonna be as good as Prince. And then there's like me, where I've always sort of took the took the road of, like I'm just as surprised as you are that I'm up here. So <laughs> if if you know if if, I, if something stupid happens or you know I I love I love the calling myself out on it and I don't take any of it very seriously and I try as hard as I can but sometimes I do blow it. So what are the some of the favorite places you've been able to play? Um the gorge in uh Washington state is pretty it's pretty impressive. It's right over the Columbia River gorge. Um you know all the all the old vaudeville theaters throughout the south, the old school theaters that are still around, you know, um too many to name. Uh, uh, of course, Radio City, um, 
uh, you know, all the venues in New York, BB Kings and, um, but Chastain Park in Atlanta is a, probably was one, it was one of my bucket list places. And I played there with the Atlanta symphony a few times. Um, played a gig with Ray Charles, played, played with, uh, uh, yeah, you know, we played with some pretty heavy hitters like Kenny Loggins and, and, um, you know, the Almond Brothers and um, Cheap Trick a bunch. We were, we loved them. They they were really nice to us. They took us out on the road a bunch. And, um, I, you know, just a, a, and part of what I, I've, I've told my kids is, is, you know, we got to be a part of the old school music business where we were still making records on tape. And we, we got to be a part of the very end of the real old school music business right before it transitioned into the like the biggest part, like when it was the the music business, when it was at its at its peak, when it, when it was massive and people were selling multiple tens of millions of records like it was a huge market share. And we got to be a part of that going away and it kind of going into like I got to ride three different phases of the music business which is pretty cool because the not many not many people get to be in an industry and see three different paradigm changes and still be in it so um and I think that's sort of the nature of the singer songwriter I think that no matter what happens in in music, there's always going to be the singer songwriter. We're like roaches, you know, like just you turn on the light in the kitchen, man, a little singer songwriter on the floor with his guitar running underneath the refrigerator. Now, are there any other performers that you are still wanting or that you haven't been able to perform with that you would love to perform with? Yeah, I don't, man, I don't know what I got to do to get on Daryl's house. I mean, I'm like, man, I, I, I do anything to be on Daryl Hall's show. Um, I, I've, I've always been in, um, I, I've always been a little wary of of being of wanting to play or meet my idols. And so, who are your idols? Well, I actually wasn't been invited to play golf with Philip Bailey a couple of times, and I haven't ever gone. And like Earth, Wind, and Fire was transformative for me as a kid, as far as like what's possible in music. So I'm a huge Earth, Wind, and Fire fan, and never met any of them, and and I mean huge fan. And so I I've but I've always kind of avoided that because I don't think I think I would be so much of a fanboy that it would wreck it, and I would I would regret meeting them. You know what I mean? It wouldn't be their fault; it would be my fault. So I've always sort of avoided that. Um, uh, I you know I I don't I, I feel like I, the only I think I have one I have one undone thing out there. I've I've been I was talking with Audley Freed uh, from the Black Crows and. Um, and they all basically is Cheryl Crow's backing band now. And we were talking, we were all talking before Cheryl hired them. And we were all talking about doing a side project together that was just straight up rock and roll. And that's one of those things that's kind of been undone that I really want to do while I'm still you know, able to do it. Um, so that's kind of, that's one of the, if, if I have one that's sitting out there, that's one of them. Yeah. Um, what about uh, the experience singing the national anthem at the AFC championship game for your beloved New England Patriots just, this past January? Describe that. Yeah, you know, it's, that was total nerve wracking because, and I do anthems all the time and I'm not worried about the anthem, but in that setting, and, and here's how it all went down, yeah, too. This I've is the part the story. where it all went down. So I play in Boston all the time, and, and Boston has been an incredible town to us. Like, they, they've been they've been so engaged, and, and shows have sold out forever. And I don't know why. There, there, was, there was a station, WBOS, and then there was the station called The River, and a few of the stations up there that just played us a lot. But I don't know, people in Boston just... They just they got it, I guess, and and so I have this rapport with crowd up there because they're pretty much straightforward people, man. You don't have to wonder what Bostonians are thinking because they're gonna tell you. So I'm sort of the same way with them, and so I was on stage in up in up in um, um, 
Blue Ocean Music Hall in Salisbury, Massachusetts. And there it was the you know, same crowd, same, you know. And I was like, you know, I've sung anthems in every stadium in this country except for Foxborough. And I'm starting to think that it's because y'all are a bunch of racists. And it's like, you're racist against rednecks. It's like, you got a problem with the fact that I'm from South Carolina. I can't get an anthem for the team I love because, because of where I'm from. And I think, I think it's wrong. Just letting you know. And I'm just giving them a hard time for the stage. You, you just said, they're like, oh, y'all, come on. You know, there is it, you know, it took me years to get them to, conv to convince them that I'm actually a fan. They just thought I was sucking up, right? They didn't believe me. And um, so the next day, I get this Twitter message from the girl that books the anthems. For the Patriots, like she's the head of the entertainment part of the of the Patriots organization. At first, I was like, "No, nah, get out of here." So I I text her back, and she's like, "Hey, uh, we would love to have you for a Patriot anthem." And I go, "Oh, well, that's awesome. Okay, just anytime, anywhere." And I assumed that she meant like regular season, non televised. I know where I fit. You know, I know what the reality is. And then Thursday. Before the AFC game, I get the call. My manager calls me and goes, dude, the Patriots want you for the AFC championship game. I'm like, shut up, man. This Whatever prank you got going right now is BS, man. That's not even funny. And you you know, you know, should be ashamed of yourself for even wading into this territory trying to play that joke on me. He goes, I swear to you, this is real. And I was like, Whatever. Hung up the phone on him. Like, no, nah, I'm not buying it. <laughs> so then she calls me and she's like, Brinson says you don't believe this real. And I was like, I don't. And, it, and the fact that you're joining in on this joke makes me not like you either. And she's like, no, this is real. And I was like, okay. So you're telling me that Thursday before the game, you didn't have somebody? Like, I'm cool with not being your first choice, by the way. I'm totally cool with that. And if you're serious, I'll be right there. I was like, holy crap, this is real. So I called some friends of mine. I was like, dude, we're going to the Patriots. And uh, we went up there and I sang, you know, I'm 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 pretty good. I'm within a second of of a minute twenty one or twenty two, which is where they want it, you know. Um and so, but I mean no one's nobody's believing this. And and then it's raining, it's coming in sideways, and I'm like, Man, please don't screw this up on national television with all these people. It's been a while since I've been on television. In fact, it's been a, since ever I was on television for 25 million people or however many people were watching it. You know, I did the Daytona 500 a few years ago, but I don't think there was 25 million people watching it. So I'm sitting there, you know, and then of course you start thinking, there's no real upside to this. Like everybody's like, oh yeah, it's the guy that sings that song and then they move on. But if you screw it up, like you're like all there is is precipice. <laughs> you know, all it is is a big cliff. And so I got out there and just sang it. And you could tell like right at the beginning, I'm a little nervous. And then I was like, ah, oh, you know, in, internally in my mind, I wish I had a tape recording of it. It's like, dude, just calm down, sing a stupid song. And in the way that I approach it too, and and I didn't mean to say stupid song. Um I well, the way I approach it too is it, it's it's not an audition. You know what I mean? I'm not auditioning. I'm leading a stadium in the singing of our national anthem. It's not about me at all. It this is this is just me simply being a part of leading the stadium in the singing of the anthem. And if you and if you sing it like everybody knows it, then they'll sing along, which is my experience over the years. And let me tell you, the people in Foxborough were singing so loud. It was awesome it was so awesome how loud they sang the anthem and it was it was sort of that thing where it was like i reminded myself at the beginning like i was nervous i'm like why are you nervous this isn't about you this is a national anthem you know and they're gonna sing with you and and they did and it was great and tomlin was about five feet away from me and i was like i hope you lose and uh, i didn't i didn't do that I, didn't, I mean it was cool and he came over and was really nice and okay nice job and i was like holy crap mike tomlin and uh it was amazing it was just one of those and you know they asked they were like do you know do you want to sit in the box with you know, and i was like no no i'm in the stance in the middle of the middle 
if you if you can get those tickets, that would be amazing. And so we had tickets in the middle of the stands, right in the middle of the like the craziest Patriots fans. And I just sat down there and had the best time freezing my butt off in the rain watching the game. Now, did you get to meet Belichick? No, no. They asked me if I wanted a meeting by and I said, absolutely not. I, I just want to be uh, invisible and I don't want to be in anybody's way. And I don't want anybody to do anything other than focus on whatever you got to focus on because I'm just happy as a clam. And so we stayed in our little room. They showed us around a little bit, but we stayed in our little room until it was time for me to go on the state out on the thing. And then after that, I went in the stands and I didn't see anybody and we left. And because I didn't want to, you know, my thing was like, focus on whatever you got to do, man. <laughs> I'm like, I don't want to be a distraction here. Yeah, you got a big game ahead. Yeah, right? you know, and even yeah. though there's plenty of people and they do all that stuff, I, I've always just sort of, my my take has always been, and I think this is why I get a lot of these anthems, you know, most of the time I show up in a cab, I don't have a lot of requirements. I just want to show up there and, and do the best job I can do for the people exactly the way they want it and then get out of their hair. And and I think they appreciate that. Yeah, you know, of the, course. It's, there's a lot of moving parts in a, in a stadium. Like when they're running a show, like everybody that's in there doing this has multiple jobs. So they're not only like taking care of us, but they have – 15 other things they have to do so if we can make our part super easy for them then they can have a better day um and i mean you think about the coordination it takes to actually open a stadium put all the people inside and get all the concessions and all the cops and the parking and the and the i mean it's crazy the logistics that go into having an NFL football game in a stadium. And so like my take on it is as a big as big a football fan as I am, I was like, I just want to be grease. I want to be grease <laughs> in the machine. I just want it to go smooth. That's all. Yeah, I can understand that. Well, Edwin, I know I've taken a lot of your time here, uh, but I could obviously talk to you for hours. One of the other things I did want to ask you, though, you're very involved in the community here in Greenville. What is it about the city of Greenville, South Carolina, that just continues to keep you so involved with the community as it's continuing to grow? Well, I mean, it's the it's the place that I was allowed to thrive. You know, I mean, this is the city where I I was given my childhood and and um and i don't think you know i think that's why people are are so sentimental about their hometowns because um this town lifted me up you know it was some little dyslexic kid from <laughs> from wherever and and uh i was given a, a great education and taught a lot of good skills and um you know, I, I've just I've been held up by Greenville, and so uh, I feel strongly about our city. But I'm also um, proud of the identity that it's that it's gathered, um, and it's done that by virtue of a lot of people that are coming here from other places. You know, this personality of Greenville has changed for the better because we have different people here. And and I think that's part of like what everybody needs to embrace uh, because sometimes I hear the whole well there's too many people moving here and well that's why it's like this you know what I mean that's why it's gotten cool like all of a sudden you're protective of it is because all these people are moving here and they have they have lived in other places and they do understand the a different um, um, mode and 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 it's also uh like part of the things that i like about greenville are are the there's a there's an altruism here and i know it exists in lots of other places but there are a lot of people that are doing work in service because it's the right thing to do and and there's like this, there's a sense of justice i mean deb moore is a perfect example at trying mercy center if you've read any of her books, her, like, I don't know if you get, if you can have a better intention, you know, and, uh, you know, what she's managed to accomplish, but there are a lot of people, you know, the, the Meyer center is another, you know, the, the, um, um, 
Hope Academy, uh, you know, don't get me started. I'm not going to be able to name all of the ones, but there are so many. Um, and uh, I'm, I, I just feel like it's part, it's just part of the, uh, the journey to be involved and, and help. And I'm honored to be involved. Like sometimes I've been invited into the conversation where I'm like, what am I doing here? You know, I mean, I don't, I don't really bring a lot of education to the table. Um, but the experiences I've had in the, in the communities I've been around, you know, you can take away, um, some positive, uh, you know, angles that other places have taken, but I'm, I'm impressed. Like the city council here is, is effective and we, everybody seems to work together. I mean, there's not a lot of, you know, in, in a lot of the larger, older cities, there's a lot of political infighting that kind of keeps things from being accomplished, but it doesn't seem to happen here. And I've always been impressed with that. I mean, I've been, you know, I remember one time the mayor invited me to his office just to sit down and talk. And I was like, what is going on? I told my wife, I was like, man, I think I'm in trouble for something. I don't know what I did. But <laughs> the principal's office. This guy called the principal's office. He just wanted to hear what I had going on. And Well, you obviously have a platform. And I think that's why they continue to keep you. Engaged and involved. I I avoid it too because I sometimes I feel like I don't. You know, I want to. You know, I always have that cynic inside me going. You know, if I was somebody else looking at me, like why? Why do I care what he has to say? You know. So like a lot of what I want to do, especially is behind the scenes. Like a lot of stuff I want to do is is do work um, that that doesn't seem like grandstanding you know what i mean like i always i always feel like there's a there's sometimes that good work gets gets discounted if it feels like somebody's self-promoting like i don't want like i want to do the, i just want to do the work and i, I don't want anybody to think i'm like hey look at me do good work like, yeah. you know i just want to do the work <laughs> I, I got and i've always been i i, I want to be care i always want to be careful with that because i never want people to confuse you know self-promotion with altruism i think those things should be separate well as we wrap up here and when just i always ask our guests any words of wisdom and you've lived a a life where you've experienced so many different things and just as you're a parent now as well and the the cross between parenting sports music all your other things what are some words of wisdom that you would like to share or words of wisdom that has meant a lot to you through your life um, you know, I, I, I helped with a film, an independent film, like this little documentary years ago, um, where, where this guy named Eric Saperson traveled around the country in a VW van right out of college selling grilled cheese sandwiches in rest areas to finance his trip. And, and his mission was he traveled around the country. He didn't have a very strong role model at home. His father had had a stroke when he was in his twenties and was disabled and so he just didn't provide Eric with any guidance with life. He didn't just didn't have any answers. So Eric went out looking for answers. And he went and cold called all these CEOs and executives and and movie stars and politicians just from payphones. This is back in the payphone day before cell phones. And he cold called his way into Bernie Marcus's office and uh, Oz Nelson from UPS and Donald Keough from Coca-Cola and Horst Schultze from the Ritz-Carlton, Jimmy Carter, Henry Winkler. Um, the list goes on and on. It, you, you know, I'll have to find you a copy of this movie. It's pretty impressive. And so he got advice and counsel from all of these people in this journey. And I think one of the, one of the things that this movie instilled or at least proved true for me because it was something I already believed is that I want to go to sleep. I want to wake up in the morning excited and go to sleep fulfilled. And how do I accomplish that? And that was the question that he was asking these people. Like how, what are what advice and counsel do you give the next generation? And I think between Horst Schultze, who's the CEO of the Ritz Carlton, his advice was, do everything that you're doing excellently. And that's the only reward. Like all of the things that'll happen will be incidental to, to your excellence, to your, to you doing whatever it is you're doing excellently. And I thought that was, 
that was really good advice and it was something that I hadn't always followed because I sometimes would half-ass things and, and everybody does that. But he didn't. He started out as a dishwasher and then became the CEO of of the Ritz-Carlton. And then um, Donald Keough, who was the president of Coca-Cola at the time, he said, your ability to succeed in life is in direct proportion to your ability to ask for help. And I loved that because I had been, I had been sort of operating under that mode my whole life. Like when I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't know how to drive a bus and I wanted to buy a bus for us to travel in because we could save money sleeping in it, whatever. And I just went to this bus company in Charleston and introduced myself to Charles, the owner of this company and asked him if he would help me buy a bus and teach me how to drive it. And he said, yes. And I mean, there was things like that. And honestly, over, over the course of my whole life, I've discovered that if you just are, are honest and honestly ask people for help, they'll gladly give it. And, and, and that's how I've learned most of everything I've ever learned how to do. I mean, or it, it, it really comes from just asking for help and giving it when asked. And that's all I would say. What a great experience for me to sit down with Edwin and talk more than just music and sports. I mean, we talked a lot of things, but it's just amazing how music and sports collide. And, you know, growing up, many of us probably either had dreams of being this big time musician up on stage or being some great athlete hitting the game winning shot or scoring the game winning touchdown, whatever it was. And that's why I love Edwin's story because he got to live out his dreams on the music front. But how great was that to hear him talk about the thrill of singing the national anthem during the AFC championship game for the New England Patriots. And now I also think it's great that he's continuing his journey and he's focusing on giving back and how important that is to him because that's another way of him reaching this fulfillment. And I know that's something that he's really focused on. Now that finishes up episode 41. And remember, focus forward so we don't live in the past. All the best, everyone. You've been listening to Rich Take on Sports, the sports podcast with life. Visit richtakeonsports.com to subscribe and catch up on any episodes you might have missed. You can also follow us on Twitter at Rich Take Sports. Thanks for listening. 